Good evening and thank you for joining tonight's um, class. Any case, uh, thank you for joining. <coughs> this week is Pashas B'Shalach. And we are excited because tomorrow night is Yud Shvat. And Yud Shvat is the, the uh, yard site, the day of the elevation of the soul of the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, and the assumption of leadership of our Rebbe um, 70, 71 years ago. It's an awesome day, and it's a day that takes that should be given a lot of attention, and we should approach the day uh, mindfully. Uh, the custom amongst Hasidim <coughs> for the Yochvat is to study the Rebbe's discourse Basiligani, which Basiligani is the opening Hasidic discourse in which the Rebbe we can say channeled all the energy of his leadership and of the godly light that he was going to bring into the world. And he encapsulated into that discourse. And the Rebbe kept on re re referencing his entire, the Rebbe stayed the course. In that discourse, the Rebbe laid out the course of his leadership. That the leadership and is nothing other than the final, the grand finale of completing the task of all of humanity from the beginning of time to the end of time to bring the Shekhinah down into this world and to bring about Mashiach. That was the Rebbe's laid that out in the Basilikani. There's no dispute that that's what the Rebbe said. And the Rebbe talks about the just like in initially bringing God down to the world took seven generations of righteous individuals led by super leaders, beginning with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So too, there is the final descent of the Shekhinah. Um, you know, the Shekhinah came down and dwelled here for about a thousand years. From the Mishkan, we went out of Egypt. It's this week's Parsha, it's Yes Mitzrayim. For about a thousand years, because they had the, 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 the 300 and something years of the 360 years, something like that. Rambam makes a cheshben of one mishkan, and the other mishkan was another couple of years here and there. And then you add it with the time to be something. Does you get roughly close to a thousand years that the shechina was in this world present, and then the shechina departed, but then it returned again, at least to some degree, for the second temple era, and then we plunged into a 2,000 year, close to a 2,000 year period of darkness. And but we know that when we finally become out of this darkness, we will achieve the final re descent of the Shekhinah to take here permanently in this world in the coming of Mashiach. And that too is coming about through seven tzaddikim. And the Rebbe basically was saying that he's the seventh. And that's, and that he's not going to let us live and he's not going to give us none of his chassidim and anybody that wants to kind of join along in his program. He called everybody to join forces with him uh, to uh, basically devote ourselves in a, in a manner of madness. That's a recurring theme in this discourse is that this Accomplishment is not something that we will do in a sophisticated, although it will be done in a very orderly and a very, and a very, and a very um, methodical way. But the energy behind it has to be an energy of shtus, which really means craziness, an energy of madness. In other words, we have to put ourselves into it infinitely, and not kind of measure and say, "I've done my part. I'm already okay. I made my contribution. I can clock out." The Rebbe wasn't into people clocking out from nine to five, uh, uh, signing up, and then you clock out. The Rebbe was into the idea, you're in it, 
and you're in it all the way. And that's the only way we're going to bring Mashiach. Obviously, because if we have to bring down the infinite into this world, we have to channel that through some measure of infinity. Um, that's So going back, the Rebbe said his discourse on Basil Ligani. Now, a little bit background before we go into today's class. The Rebbe's first discourse that the Rebbe spoke in 5711, which is corresponding to the year 1951, um, on that day when the Rebbe said the discourse, the Rebbe was picking up from a discourse that his predecessor, the previous Rebbe, had left off. And just for those who might not know, the previous Rebbe in, the, in his last couple of years was physically, um, physically to a certain degree paralyzed. He had many, many he had a speech impediment and uh, he had became, was very, very, he had gone through a hellish experience in the, in the, the rut with the Soviets and so on and so forth. He was arrested, he was beaten. And um, he really wasn't uh, physically well, although he was working like a, literally like a, like a, like a fear, fear, fearless lion. And he established Chabad in America in the last 10 years of his life. And from there came a network, a global network. But uh, the Rebbe himself couldn't really say Hasidus. He couldn't say the main thing of a Rebbe is to teach Hasidus, which are these divine teachings. He couldn't say it. And because of that, instead, to replace that, is he would take old discourses that he had said in earlier years. The previous Rebbe was Rebbe for a total of 30 years, from 1920 till 1930. Um, so there were old, lots of old discourses, which he said during 20 years of his, or 25, exactly how long the Rebbe said discourses. So in the last couple of years when he couldn't give a discourse, he would take an old discourse of his and he would have it reprinted and republished and everybody would learn it. And he would usually put those out for special occasions, like for every holiday, for Yom Tif, so the Hasidim can be inspired and connect to the, to the godliness of the Rebbe. Now, um, the, um, the, now in the, in the middle of the winter, in January of 1950, um, in the month of Shvat, the Friedrich Rebbe was celebrating his grandmother's yard site. That's his father's mother's yard site, his bubby's yard site. And that was Rebetz and Rivka. Now, Rebetz and Rivka passed away on Yod Shvat. That was her yard site. So the previous Rebbe prepared a discourse for his grandmother's yard site. And the discourse, and he had it printed for that particular Shabbos, Shabbos Parsha's bow. Um, that Shabbos morning, the previous Rebbe returned his soul to his maker. So the Hasidim had a discourse that the Rebbe had given them to read that Shabbos. Obviously, they took this discourse as a very, very serious man. Because a tzaddik doesn't just uh, disappear without warning. A tzaddik generally prepares us. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's, he's a shepherd. A shepherd has to prepare his flock before he takes departure of them. So Hasidim said that basically in this mind, Rabbi the previous Rebbe charted Chabad for the future. And basically, the whole mimer is talking about seven tzaddikim. The previous Rebbe is number six, and he's handing it over to number seven. So it was so clear from the discourse that was given over that the previous Rebbe can visualize that now it's time for number seven. And the previous Rebbe is laying the foundation for the next, for his successor, who's going to take over and complete the work that all six Chabad Rabbeim and really from the Balshemtov were busy doing, and that is preparing the world for Mashiach and bringing Mashiach literally. But it says so, counted from... 
Yeah, because the because the Balshemtov's Hasidus and the Magid's Hasidus is still above the heavens. It's not yet it's not yet in the world. It's it's pure, it's pure unadulterated godliness as it is before the Tsimtsum. And all it's pure infinity. In order for it to come into the world, which is the whole process of Gaula, is that this infinite light has to come down into the world. So and that process is the world has many levels. So you bring it first into the higher levels of the world, which is the higher levels of human intelligence, godly intelligence, and then you bring it down lower and lower until the Rebbe brings it down on every street corner. That's the idea, that godliness can be tangible in the street corner, which means in the very material and the physical, and that's where the Rebbe is exactly equivalent to Moshe Rabbeinu, who brings mitzvahs down into physical. He takes it out of meditation and he brings it into practical actions of the physical body in which we do things, and those things connect us to God. And the idea is we make God very tangible and real in, on, on, on the actual physical plane. In any case, so what did the Rebbe do? So the following year, the Rebbe is the one who starts his leadership. And again, this was the custom of Chabad Rabbeim. The custom of the Chabad Rabbeim, I'm gonna move this a little bit like this so I can talk to you and I also get the camera straight at me, okay. So the custom of the Chabad Rabbeim was that they would initiate their leadership by saying Chassidus. So when the Rebbe began his, his uh, 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 the first year the Rebbe declined to be the leader. He kept on saying no, no, no. And as much as they pestered and cried and begged, the Rebbe kept on shooing everybody away. Finally accepted it on the yearly anniversary, on the year, on the first year anniversary of his father-in-law's passing. And, the, and that night, the Rebbe said, Now, what the Rebbe did from that year and onward is that every year he would say again on the anniversary of his father-in-law's passing, which is also the anniversary of his um, assumption of leadership, he would then say a mimer, also starting Basilegani, every year. But every year he would focus on another chapter of the previous Rebbe's mind, or he would expound and explain. And the previous Rebbe's discourse that he gave out for that Shabbos, uh, and it had like a, it was not just one discourse. It was, it was like a, I think, three discourses together, which are considered one long discourse, but divided into three parts. It had, however, 20 chapters. So the Rebbe would focus every year, he would study one chapter, and his discourse was an, exp an expounding on another chapter. When the Rebbe finished 20 years, from 1951 to 1971, the Rebbe made a started over again. And again, he went back to chapter one to explain chapter one with new insight and new explanation. And, he, and the Rebbe didn't finish the second. The Rebbe went like three quarters through the second. Because the Rebbe stops saying memorim like in, in um, 1986, around 1987. So at that time, it's like the last memorandum, primarily when his, when his wife passed away, I think 1988. So he didn't get all the way to the end, but you have almost to the end. Now, so we have, we have basically the previous Rebbe with 20 chapters of Basilegani, and then we have around 38 discourses of the Rebbe, which are commentary. And actually there's more, because some years the Rebbe said more than one discourse. So you have like a couple of extra. You said would say two. Okay. Um, and what, so what we do now as Hasidim, every year we continue the same counting. And Hasidim learned the Basilegani every year. 
and particularly paying attention to the discourse that is applicable to that year. This year would correspond to chapter 12. So what, I, um, so what I'm planning to do tonight is to give a little insight, not in the Rebbe's discourses on chapter 12. There's two Maimarim from the Rebbe on, on expounding on chapter 12. One is from the year Tafshim Chav Beis, which corresponds to the year 5762. That would be the first one that was applying to number, chapter number 12. And the second one is Tafshim Mem Beis, which is... Uh, 5742. Um, the first one is 5722. The second one is 5742, 20 years later, which corresponds to the year 1982. That's the second one. Uh, those discourses are very deep. Previous Rebbe's Mimer is also very deep. <laughs> um, what I'm going to focus is on, on the previous Rebbe's Mimer, chapter 12. Um, and I'd like to get insight onto that chapter and kind of give off the essence of the idea that applies to this year's Basi Lagani. It's really, now let me tell you where I'm coming from when before I give this year. I'm coming from a place because I was uh, honored a couple of years ago um, to teach the, er, the, these discourses, to give a yearly talk for the Chabad Elementary School on the on the Chayda Menachem over here in Los Angeles on the previous Rebbe's discourse each chapter and I've been doing this already 12 years they started at the beginning of the first cycle of when we started 12 years ago and every year I give a talk and it's challenging the reason it's challenging is because we're dealing with a a, a Hasidic discourse with extremely abstract concepts and to be able to and to teach that to children. Now, these I don't teach the younger kids when I go there, but it's they usually have it as a father and son learning, where the parents learn with their children. They come to have a breakfast. The parents study the chapter with their children, like for 20 minutes, a half an hour. I don't know how long they spend. And then I give a class every year. Um, it's one of my most intimidating classes because it's extremely difficult to be able to hold a crowd and both entertain parents and children at the same time with abstract ideas. It's not like I'm free to just give whatever I want to speak about. I'm kind of limited into the sense focused on the discourse. Now, it, it, every year it's, it's, it's difficult and, I, and thank God it, it, it is always received uh, with a lot of joy because they, uh, thank, they're still calling me back, so that's nice. Uh, this year, I had literally in, uh, intense intimidation because this year, the mimer particularly starts, and it's starting this year. It's this year and the next couple of years, the discourse is becoming more and more abstract. And to, take, uh, to talk about concepts of infinity and so on and so forth and, uh, and speak about that, that 12-year-olds, the kids are mainly from 12 to 14. So th that age kids, to be able to explain a concept and an idea and have them entertained for an hour, not the easiest. And thank God I just did it. I, I, I was at, at a loss, literally for days. I had no idea. I learned it again and again, and I couldn't crack it. And I did do it uh, yesterday, in, yesterday in the morning, but I, I think they didn't record it. Maybe someone has a recording. And I said to myself, it's a shame. I, I want to have that recording. 
So I said, I'm going to do my adult class. I'm going to do my children class. And I'm going to share with you the insights that I came up. So please excuse if I'm being a little childish at times, because that's actually the best. Secondly, it's they're, very, they're profound ideas, even if they're set in a more simpler or maybe ridiculous setting. But that, that's okay. But they're very, very profound ideas. Now, I also want to say that my intention over here was not to literally explain the Perek, the, the chapter. Um, I'm going to do a quick overview on the chapter before I teach you what I said to the children. Um, my intention is not to literally say that this is what the mimer is saying, but to try to capture the crux of the idea and bring it down to make it applicable, real, exciting, and meaningful, and even for children. So that was my intention, and uh, I hope I didn't err, okay? Because I do go off in a tangent. That's not exactly some ideas of what I've been, that I spoke to the children are not the exact ideas of the mimer. It's just I'm leading to one point, which I think is the nucleus of the, of the, of the previous, of, the, of, the, of this chapter. Okay, but before we go there, before I will actually do a repeat of yesterday's <laughs> uh, talk to the, the, over there, I do want to just give you a more, when you say educated um, synopsis, just of the main point, which would be ideas as follows. You see, the Mimer in the previous Mimarim, in the previous discourse, the previous chapters of the Mimer, the previous Rebbe is talking about the job of the seventh, of the seventh generation, is to bring the Shekhinah down. And to bring the Shekhinah down is the ultimate task, because what you're basically doing is you're going into the zone that is the most ungodly, and you're transforming it into godliness. That's how he explains, how do you bring the Shekhinah down by converting darkness to light? You encounter a world that's dark, a world that is anti-holy and anti-godly, and you take the very substances of those, um, of, the, the, of the impure, and somehow you transform them and utilize it to holiness. And the more we do that, the more we convert darkness to light, that is attractive and exciting to God, and that draws the essence of God down into this world. In the midst of this whole discussion, which is a discussion we've discussed in other years, he's leading up to a very important point. And he says that this basically involves a major battle because the klipa, the unholy, is not going to go down, you know, um, go down without a fight. The unholy puts up a magic, the satanic forces of this world, the forces of darkness that God intentionally created that we should overpower them and convert them are not willfully just surrendering. So therefore, it's a battle. It's a very great, and it's an internal battle for each and every one of us, because we all have the unholy in our own hearts. We all have an appetite for sin. We have an appetite for selfishness and so on and so forth. And we have to overcome that. And we have to fight that folly, as he calls it, that just the unholy uh, 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 silliness and, and folly and, and foolishness. And it's a major battle especially when it gets to the finish, to the final blow. When it gets to the final, the battle becomes extremely intense. Now, obviously, anybody looking at the world today can see that the battle is at its fiercest. And that's what it is, as we get to the, to the, to the final victory. Now, um, the, the but, the, Rebbe, the previous Rebbe writes in the earlier chapters that because victory is the ultimate purpose, 
and victory, it's all about the final, it's all about the victory. God gives us everything, gives us enormous power. In other words, on the one hand, we're considered the last generation in many ways, the most diminished, the most spiritually um, weakest generation from all generations, following the concept that there is a general decline of, of the spiritual stature of people. Um, and the souls of the earlier generation come from a higher, higher source. And later we get weaker and weaker. But that's in as much as we're talking about our own, our own powers. But then there is special empowerment that God gives to complete the task. Why? And he gives an interesting analogy. He says kings have, um, you know, a lot of, they have, a for, they have money, a fortune, and they spend a king's supposed to be wealthy and he spends his money in and if he's a, and if he's a benevolent kind caring king who takes his 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 constituents his, his subjects um, seriously he, he uses his wealth to better their life not for himself uh, so he spends money on them all the time but even when he spends money even on the most important things there's certain reserves that he never touches and these are like his private 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 uh, treasures that are handed down from his from his from earlier generations, and that he they're like the apple of his eye, and he will never touch them. He will never, definitely not squander them, but even touch them and utilize them. But there is one exception: if the king is in battle and he sees that he's losing the battle, and in order to have victory, he needs to replenish his his armies with food, with with ar- with arms, and needs to purchase more more guns and and whatever it is. He will ransack his treasures. He will go into places that he would never, ever think of doing it. And not only will he take those treasures, but he will squander them. And also he will give them out, not even in such a careful way, because he's so fired up. He's so crazy about victory. And, and the victory is poking him in such a deep place. It's, 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 um, it's, it's like awakening him. It's, it's, it's literally, it's jolting him you can say. The fact that there is an enemy that's threatening to defeat him and he's not, the king is not going to be defeated. So he's going to fight in a way that he's, that he's going to, what do you call it? Call all the stops? Pull out. What is it? Pull out. Pull, pull out all the stops. He's going to go in, go, go all the way in. And that's what the Rebbe, the previous Rebbe says, the last and final generation is gifted with gifts like no other generation has. I think the gift that he's talking about is the Rebbe himself. Our Lubavitcher Rebbe had, has given us which no other Rebbe gave. He gave infinite time. He gave infinite teachings. So much pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring like endlessly. The other Chabad Rebbe and the other great saintly tzaddikim before were very reserved. And many secrets they kept inside, they didn't reveal. The Rebbe printed all the sacred texts that were, that they were, were, were always kept locked away no one ever the rebbes would say it and, and 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 but they didn't print it because it was too holy the world couldn't hold such holiness the rebbe went and printed it not only we spoke last week like by moshe Rabbeinu, we had the whole talk that he's that he, that he that that he published in all languages that's the idea that's the idea of squandering you're not making any calculations of who's going to get a hold of it it's it's going like crazy and that's what the previous rebbe explains in the in the uh in the earlier chapter when he gets to this chapter, chapter 12, 
he opens the chapter up with the statement saying to understand the uh, that I just gave you an analogy that in order for victory the king goes and takes all of his hidden treasures and he spends it so what does it mean to God that God has hidden treasures what are the hidden treasures if this is all an analogy for Hashem what is Hashem's hidden treasure that now he takes it out for the, for the final battle that's the question in this discourse so the Rebbe is only going to come to the answer of it, not in this chapter. He's going to come to the answer of this question, I think, in four chapters further. Now, you have to learn another four chapters till you get to the answer. But he begins to develop an idea. And what is it? So he says, the infinite one, God, and his infinite, and in his infinite light, which means his infinite revelation, the Zohar says two, two aspects to God's infinity. The Zohar says that God's infinity is it is higher and higher and higher to no end is it higher. It is above, 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 above and it is endlessly without an end above, 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 above. And God's infinite light is also lamata mata ad ein, the words you lamata mata ad ein tachlis. It goes down, 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 down. It lowers itself down without an end, where there's no end to how low it comes. Okay, so it rises higher and higher and higher and higher, literally endlessly high, but it also has the capacity to come down low. Not just it comes down; it does that coming down low, 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 and endlessly low, without an end low. That's what the Zohar says. So the previous event differentiates these two, these two, um, 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 these two descriptions about the Orient Self, about the infinite one. And the previous event is going to explain the more, ex which one of the two is higher, which one of the two is a greater element? The fact, in other words, it's not just two, two it's not just one description of two aspects of the Orient Self. That the Orient Self has the quality of being higher, higher, higher without an end, and then going lower, 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 but it's one Orient Self that is limitless in its elevation and limitless in its descent. But rather, the previous web explains that we're talking about two dimensions in the Orient Self itself. That there is a higher quality in the Orient Self, meaning a deeper truth in the Orient Self, a more precious element to the Orient Self. And that is the secretive, that is the secretive aspect of the Orient Self. The fact that it remains elusive, no matter how high you go, and in the highest levels, in the highest levels and in the highest worlds, as you climb up the rung and reach the highest celestial, spiritual, angelic beings, and then you go even higher and you reach those infinite worlds that are just higher and higher and higher, the Orient Self is still elusive. He's, he's beyond it. He's beyond it. He's hidden from them. He's hidden from them. As high as you go, and you can go on an infinite journey 
to higher, 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 higher levels, you're still not getting it. You're still beyond. That element in the Orient self, that he is secret of secret and removed and removed and untouchable and unknowable and, and, and meaning the most hidden in the sense that he's not revealing himself, that element of him is higher, a higher quality than his other element. And that is what's the second element, that because he's infinite, he has the ability to infinitely express himself and to reveal himself even in the lowest of places. So he, he can reveal, he can come down, 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 and down and down. And which really means is, as we're going to see, that's the main point of this discourse in today's discourse, is that the infinite has the ability to descend, descend, descend. And as he descends down into lower forms of creation and lower forms of existence, he can be present and remain and still reveal his infinity even in the lowest of places. Now, we're going to get back to explain that soon, okay? But all I wanted to say is, what's negated to us, what's important to us right now, is what the Friedrich Rebbe is saying is there are two levels in the light. There is a higher quality to the light, and that is that it is infinitely private. And there is a, a lower level in the light that it is infinitely expressive. Okay, once we know that, the Rebbe is later going to explain in, four, in three, four chapters from now that when we say what's God's treasure that he only reveals to the last generation for the final battle, which is our generation. What's the treasure? The treasure is his, his pride, his, his elusiveness, his hiddenness, which is obviously a far more potent element of the infinite. And an and inner element of the infinite and of his boundlessness, that element is conveyed to us as, and, is, and is channeled. In other words, we can attach ourselves to his elusiveness, to his elevation, not just to his expression. That's the idea. And that's what's given for the sake of the ultimate victory. That's what the previous Rebbe is going to do. In today's in chapter 12, in the discourse that we're discussing tonight, he's explaining the lower part, the, 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 the let's just put it, the inferior element of the Orient Self. The, 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 exp the expressiveness of the Orient Self, that it can express itself farther and farther and farther, and it can express itself endlessly, meaning, as we're going to see soon, in the lowest form of setting, it can still express the infinity. That's the idea. Um, so he begins, and I'm just going to make a few observations, just, just the, the point by point. Point number one is that when we speak about or in sof, which obviously is a, a, a term, term, a Kabbalistic term, and a term that is mentioned in Kabbalah, and um, I think the concept of Orient Soif Lamata is, is oh, it's in it's in Tukune Zohar, so it's a Zoharic term, Orient Sof. The previous Rebbe is telling us that Orient Sof doesn't only mean the light from the infinite. First, he's establishing that the light itself is infinite, not it's the light 
emanating from an infinite being. Then the infinity would be applying to not the light, but be applying to the source of the light. So the Rebbe is saying, bringing from these, his grandfather, the Alter Rebbe, his great-great-grandfather, the Alter Rebbe explains that when we say Oyer Insof, it doesn't mean Oyer, the light of the Insof, emanating from the, from the one without an end, but that the light itself is Insof. That's point number one. Now, how does that infinity of the light express itself? The, infin the infinity of the light expresses itself. It expresses itself, as we said earlier, in a very private way, and that's not its expression. Its quality of infinity is that no matter how high you go, you will never know it. It can remain hidden and above no matter which, which level is reached. In that sense, so it's infinitely up. It's also infinitely down. And that is the idea that he can let himself down and lower himself down, 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 without a limit of how far down. But here's the main point of the minor. Later he's going to explain, and I want to differentiate, later in the next chapter and the chapter after that he's going to explain that part of the idea that God can lower himself down, the infinite light can lower itself down, 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 is that there's no measure of how low he can create a creation. And where do we see? The fact that God creates the lowest type of creation possible. He creates creations that are completely in their consciousness detached from him. That there is no, nothing of the divine in them. And that means his power is infinite because he can extend low, 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 low. He can't get lower than that in a sense, once there's no divinity, it's almost like you've come to a point where there's no divinity at all, and yet God can produce over there. But that's not the point in this discourse. Again, that's going to be next year's point. That part of the omnipotence of the light is that it has no end of how, how, how much it can disconnect from its creation that it's creating. It can create meaning. On the higher realms, there are myriads and myriads of creatures and levels that are created and they're not infinite, they're finite, but they still have a connection to the source that's creating them. They still relate to the light. They feel the light. They're conscious of a God. And God's ability to come down, down, down is to create so low that a, a world that can be oblivious from God completely. So there is no light. Like he can, he can dim. Okay. That's next year's point. This year's point is a very rich point. The idea that God can lower himself down without an end in this year's mimer, the idea is that notwithstanding the low condition of the creation, God is present and not only present, he can reveal his infinity and he does reveal his infinity even in the lowest world which we're, we're, we're at first glance, there is no divinity at all, yet God's infinity is completely imprinted in that world. So not just that he can create a low world, not that he can create a low world, he can reveal himself and, not, and, and, and reveal himself not by mitigating himself, but reveal himself with all of his infinite power in that low world. 
Yeah. Now, when now you can say, well, that's that's this week's parsha. That's what Peshalach is. That's a miracle. That's that God's infinity is revealed in this world. <laughs> when when we stood by the sea, we all pointed with our finger. We said, "This is God. This is God's infinite power." He split the sea. So he's he's overriding nature. He, so he can reveal himself in time and space, and in a world that is seemingly governed by natural systems and orders which kind of creates some kind of a construct of a godless state, just a, 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 a certain uh, a mechanical system that works kind of on its own based on rules of nature and so on and so forth. The fact that God brought 10 plagues in, in Egypt over and completely, you know, dismissed all the scientists and all the big, big shots and, and, and did whatever he wanted, that was... His ability to be infinite even in the finite world. But that's not where he's going, and he doesn't say that. Where he's going is that even while the world is natural, and even while the world is completely obscuring God, God not only could reveal himself, but he's actually revealed there in all of his infinity. He's actually revealed. And the, and the Rebbe says... He points a couple of levels through which this infinity, in other words, the infinite light is so potent that no matter what, where it's going, it retains its infinite potency. Okay, so it, it would be a lot to explain the main ideas that he's saying, so I, but I, because I told you that I'm going to do a, a rough, a brief draft, he basically divides it into three three stages stage number one of the infinite light is when the infinite light so to speak is in its place meaning before it it enters into the construct of creation in other words in kabbalah it speaks of a great black hole that god brought about in which to create a black hole where he blocks his infinity where he blocks his light it's almost like he creates a godless vacuum a a a, a godless state a great vacuum but the infinite light, when it hasn't yet engaged in this black hole, when it's still above it and beyond it, let's speak about before creation, even if we're talking on levels that are not within time, but transcending all of creation. Over there is infinity is revealed. We're talking about, again, there is his infinity being elusive and there is his infinity being revealed. What's his revelation of his infinity on that level? On that level, his infinity is revealed in the fact that his infinite light over there can actually express itself in infinite attributes. There's a concept in Kabbalah called spherot enkates, attributes that have no end, which means we are familiar that there are 10 attributes, but 10 attributes are, a, are, are just a, obviously, a infinitesimal, tiny little um, um, projection of God's ability to express himself. He hypothetically could express infinite different qualities. Now we understand that our entire system of our psychological makeup and the cycle and all of time and space and everything that exists, if you really, really probe and the underlying workings of everything, you'll get down to these 10 10 attributes. In other words, the entire construct of existence as we know it is only 10, and we can't even hypothesize different, 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 different 
energies that are completely different. And other, we understand intelligent energy, we understand emotional energy, and so on and so forth. But a complete different experience, we don't know what it is because God didn't, in, in Hashem did not emanate that into our, into our experience. Because our experience is just built on 10 building blocks. But the light before had the ability, and we say it had, it actually did. It expressed itself with infinite different possibilities of attributes. And over there, all those attributes are all infinite. Meaning not only infinite, not only infinite styles, blue, red, pink, yellow, and so on and so forth, but each one is, 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 is infinite in its own. So it's infinite number, endless number, and endless in each one, it's, it's infinite. And on that level, it's, it's, it's without a number, but at the same time, it, it's so clearly felt that it's really only one being, one infinite light, that because it's limitless, has, has no end to its ability to, to... So really, it's the same... It's the same light in every one of these infinite possibilities and infinite attributes. Okay. That's the first level of expression where the infinite light expresses itself. Second level, why is it that in the end we only have 10 attributes? Why is it that we only have 10 attributes and not, the Zohar says explicitly, there is 10 and not 9, 10 and not 11. So ultimately God does come down and project 10 forces or project himself through 10 particularized forces. That's because, not because of the infinite light's limitations, that's because of God's other kind of trick, if you can say, and that's his power to constrain, which is the tzimtzum, the contraction. And the power of contraction, which is an infinite power of God to limit and to conceal and to block, that's what does influences the infinite light. So when the infinite light is passing through the symptom, the contraction, and entering, so to speak, into this black hole, because it is now passing through the, the, this, this, this power of the divine to constrict and to hide, the infinite light is now not exercising its full muscle power to express infinite attributes, but it's now only expressing 10 attributes. So we would say, fine, gone is the infinity. So we would now say that the infinite is not infinitely potent. We would now say that it's not limitless, because if it would be limitless, nothing should be able to stop it. Here we're seeing some, there's a barrier. The barrier blocks its infinity. Now it can only operate, it only has 10, it can only do 10 shtick. It can't do more than that. You know, it can pull 10, 10 tricks out of his bag, not infinite tricks. So he's limited now. Yes, he wasn't limited, but now that he's wearing a, a, a body suit, uh, some kind of a, a straitjacket, uh, that's holding him back from doing his, it's like this guy who can do uh, 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 enormous tricks, this incredible acrobat, put him into a straitjacket. He can only, so that means he is not infinite. He was never infinite because if something can stop him. So if the symptom can stop him, so the Rebbe said, no. God wants the symptom to be there to create a finite world, but God still wants his infinity to come through. Where does his infinity come through after the symptom? He says it's true. 
There's only 10 sefirot, but those 10 sefirot are infinite. It's infinite wisdom. It's infinite understanding. It's infinite kindness. It's infinite judgment. It's infinite compassion. And more than that, those 10 attributes create, are the energy source for infinite worlds. That means even after the symptom, the creations that are formed through the through the through these attributes, and especially because these attributes combine one with each other and create infinite possibilities, the worlds that are created from them are infinite worlds. So we still so where does the infinity still express itself? Yes, it's not expressing itself in attributes that are without an end. Because if the attributes would be on end, there wouldn't be a creation at all. It would just be, or there would be a creation, but the creation would be literally uh, whatever. It wouldn't be what it is. So therefore, that God tones down his infinite ability to, to, to express himself through infinite attributes. That he does tone down, but he doesn't tone down the infinity in the fact, in, in, in this, that the attributes are, are infinite attributes. And they create infinite worlds. Good. That's the second stage. But then we come to another barrier. When we go through all the 10 attributes and we come to the last attribute called Malchus, the attribute of kingship. And we know that's where the actual creation of time and space takes place. The final creation. Because the worlds that we're talking about before are very, very sublime worlds that are not within the same range of time and space that we know. It's a complete different. That's, that's what we're talking about, these infinite worlds. But once we're coming down to create the fixed reality, now the way it is explained in many classes that we've given in the past is our reality, our world is really based on a three-pronged system of three worlds. There's a world called Bria, creation, a world of mainly souls. And then there is a world of formation, Yetzirah, which is a world primarily of angels. And then there is our world, which is the world of completion, Asiya, the world of creation, and the material world, three worlds. Here, things are very, very what? Limited, defined, and set. Okay. Why, the, how does it change? How does it go from a place of infinite infinite worlds to fixed worlds and, and that the worlds themselves are very fixed and limited? That's because God is actually directing his energy through filters and those filters, are, those filters are already considered creations. The filter itself is creation. It says God wears shoes. It's called Nal the Shechina. The Shechina wears shoes. What is that shoe? Those shoes are angels. God's shoes are angels. The angel, the idea, they're called sandal and uh, sandalfine and so on and so forth. What do, they, what do they do? The fact that God's infinite light is now being filtered through a truly finite being, which is an angel, what is that doing to the infinity? It's now covering the infinity to a much greater degree. However... And creating fixed world. So now the worlds are no more what? Are no more infinite. There's three worlds. However, the Rebbe says the infinity still comes through. Because if the infinity would not come through, if God's infinity would not come through, then he would really not be that infinite. The fact, what are we saying is his, abil his ability, 
is that no one can stop his infinity. And no matter what setting you give him, the infinite still can express its infinity. So if he would be able to be put into even a tighter straitjacket, put another one on, a more stiffer one, which is what, and that should stop him from being able to do his infinite tricks, that would mean he was never really infinite. So improving that the Oren Seif is truly, truly infinite in, in its expressive abilities, in its expressive abilities, is from the fact that even when it goes into the third stage, when we say over here third, we mean general stage. Between all these stages are millions, myriads, and myriads of different. But we're talking three general stages. When you get to the last stage, which is the conclusion of the world of Atsilos, and we're coming down to the actual final creation, where does the infinity express itself? So the Rebbe says an interesting thing. There's actually infinite amount of, cre of, of creatures in these three worlds, which is a hard thing for us to fathom. In other words, even though each creature is finite, an angel is finite, but how many angels are there? The attributes are not infinite anymore. The attributes that are functioning on these levels are already constricted. The worlds that are coming down over here are already finite. It's not infinite worlds. But within them, infinite creations. There's no number to how many, how many creatures there are. So again, what do you see over here? God's fingerprints of his infinity is seen in the world. Another idea that the Rebbe, the previous Rebbe doesn't say, but the Rebbe says it, in his commentary on the previous Rebbe's Mayim, is the fact that our material physical world is not getting weaker from day to day. In other words, the world is not withering and aging and getting tired. A finite power always wears and tears. So if you have a, if you have a world and you're looking at at the waves in the ocean, um, they're not in any way tamer or weaker or lacking the, their ferociousness that they did a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago. They're just as powerful. The sky doesn't look, the blue sky doesn't look tired and soggy. When the birds are chirping, they don't sound any different than chirping birds 5,000 years ago. They're just as alive. They're just as fresh. The earth is producing produce with the same vigor and strength it did then. It's not like from year to year, we're just getting less and less. Yes, there are times there are droughts, sometimes there are uh, certain things, and, and we can question how much we impact the, 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 the environment and, and all of that. But essentially, nature is not getting, how is that possible? Every single thing that's finite should wear and tear. And the energy that God is inputting in this world seemingly is finite. If it would be an infinite energy, why is it creating fixed and finite creatures? So on the one hand, it's finite. But on the other hand, within its finitude, it has the infinite. It's really a cool combination. Within the finitude of it, it has an infinite something to it. And in that infinity is where you can point and say, here is my God. In other words, you don't need Kriyas Yamsuf. You don't need the miracle. You don't need the splitting of the sea, the manna coming down from heaven, 
and crazy things like that to display. Obviously, when those things happen, it's visible to everybody. And But the, what he's saying is that even by just examining nature, if you're looking with a discerning eye and you're contemplating what you're seeing, you can see an infinite soul to a finite creation. There is an infinite being present in here. And that's the idea that God's infinity can express itself low, low, low without end. Tool here is a synopsis of the previous Rebbe's mimer of the discourse of this, of this year. And now to my silly teaching that I gave for the kids yesterday, in which I had to take this idea and explain it uh, in a tangible way to 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, uh, to be able to get this concept. Okay. So the essence of this year's Basi Lagani basically is saying that God is super cool. He's unbelievably cool. His coolness is in this, that he can be totally revealed. He can be totally revealed. And what do we mean totally revealed? Totally revealed is, I mean, obviously the metaphor that's used for the divine is light. It's obviously a metaphor. There are certain qualities of light. God created light to be a metaphor of him. So when we're referring to the divine, we can use light. And when we talk about totally revealed, we're talking about a light that is shining with all of its brightness. So if we can close our eyes for a minute and think about the brightest light we can only imagine. The sun is dark compared to this light. But we can try to imagine brightness and try to imagine just vast, endless brightness which is bright, 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 bright. And obviously our minds are just limited in how our, in our capacity to be able to see. But even if we're just using physical brightness to look at. So I'll give you now a few seconds to look at this bright, 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 brightness. Intense brightness. Okay. But that very same God is not limited in having the lights on and being as bright as bright can be. He can... Diminish, dim his light. So he has the ability to dim the light. How much can he dim? He can totally dim. He can dim his light to the point, to the point that there's not a trace of it. Okay. So now let's take ten seconds, and I'm going to count with you. We're going to go from endlessness, brightness. That we're going to try to get back to where we were before. When you see that bright, and as I'm counting down. You're gonna with in your in your mind, you're gonna you're gonna we're gonna be dimming it together until we get to just as dark as darkness can be. Okay, let's do that. So we're starting off with endless bright. And we start now. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three. Okay. Now, but here's the cool part about God. The coolest part about God is that he can be infinitely bright and infinitely dark at the same time. 
And here, all the super cool people in the audience are not going to be able to participate in this because we cannot make that happen in our brain. We cannot visualize being fully revealed and fully concealed at the same time. Because if there's no light, it's dark, it's dark. And if there is light, then it's bright. So to be both bright and dark, and in the dark, he's, he's fully bright, and yet he's fully dark, it's a yes and a no, it's a contradiction. It, it, it's a intellectual impossibility. The logical clash, it can't, it, it, it can't be. And yet God obviously transcends logic and he can do both. That's the theme of this, of this year's mind, that, that, that there is God's um, omnipotence and the, not, not even the omnipotence of his essence, the omnipotence of his light, that it can be completely hidden and completely, and completely revealed at the same time. But what does this mean in the literal sense? And how can we see this? So we can't visualize it, but how can we kind of see it? So here's a story from the Balshemtov. Not a Balshemtov story, but a story that the Balshemtov told. Okay. So the Balshemtov tells a story. It comes from the book. Uh, it's printed in the book um, Degel Machne Ephraim who is a grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. And he brings this teaching from his grandfather. And it's also printed in Keser Shem Tov. And over there it says like this. There was once a king who was a very benevolent king, a very kind king, and he had this beautiful um, uh, kingdom and he loved his people. And they all obviously wanted to be close to him because he was such a good guy. And everybody wanted to always come to him and everybody wanted to see him and everybody wanted to get close to him. But the king wanted to really test, and he didn't want just everybody to come. He didn't want to have, even though his goodness was endless, but he didn't want to just have a free-for-all for everybody to come for a simple reason. Because many of them, he felt, were not coming because they really loved him and wanted to connect to him. They were coming so that they can get something from him. They were coming for external reasons. Some of them were coming because there's very great free cookies, the best imaginable cookies in the palace and you can come there and enjoy pastries like you couldn't get anywhere else others liked other the the food court in the palace that's given away free food gourmet food and why not the king's infinite kindness in which he's feeding everybody others come because they want they need money favors from the king the king to help them out with their own with various different things others come i don't know because they enjoy the, all the other possibilities that are being offered in the palace and the king wants to get to know who really loves him and is not coming because of anything else, but just has a true desire. So what does the king do? The king goes and decides to create a buffer zone between him and the people. And the buffer zone consists of a series of obstacle courses to get to the palace. And the obstacle course starts off with this huge, huge, huge um, wall. In order to get to the palace, you have to scale the wall. Can't use a ladder. There's no stairs. It's a couple of hundred feet tall. There's no stairs. Maybe there's earth around there that is can't hold a ladder. Um, so that's not going to be a possibility. People can stand on it, but no, you can't put a heavy thing. It's just going to fall. So there is no way to use a ladder. So you got to really 
hone your rock climbing skills. So those are really cured to go see see the king. You know, went to uh, went to the arcade or these places where you learn how to. They have these rock climbing uh, things, and they're learning how to climb and climb and climb, and you fall and you hurt yourself. But because you really, really want to see the king, you're going to do it. Anyways, thousands of people signed up, and many people were climbing the walls. They just wanted to be able to go to the king. When they got over on the other side, those who didn't get up climbing didn't give up climbing but managed to get over on the other side. Suddenly, as they got on the other side, there was this ferocious river, a water, a river that was just uh, and a very intense flow of water and rapids and rocks. And, uh, you know, it's very, very unlikely to get across that river because the water will just you know, take it down and waterfalls and so on and so forth. It was literally an impossible pass. And to make matters worse, the king threw in a couple of crocodiles as well, just for the for the extra fun of it. So from time to time, you see like a little um, uh, circles in the water and a little snout sticking up and, you know. So there's obviously everybody that's standing over there on the side of the banks of the river, thinking and what and where, until someone takes the plunge. The person with all of his might somehow looked around and found the best place for the river crossing and swam like crazy, managed to get across to the other side and others followed. A lot of them got swept away. A lot of some were eaten by the crocodiles. But there were those who managed to get over on the other side. And when they finally got over onto the other side of the river and they walk further, they come to a second wall. And this wall is even taller than the wall. And now they have to scale the second wall. And it's harder. And they're doing, right? but in order to help convince, in order to filter out those that the king doesn't want, obviously people who arrive after all of this, they cross the river. They're on the other side of that obstacle course. They climbed already the first wall. It's not worth it to turn back. Especially you have to go back across the river and go over a wall. You might as well continue. So what the king had was that he had people there next to the second wall. They were hanging out trinkets and good stuff. Like they were giving out gold watches and other, other expensive jewelry and other, other things too. You know, if, if, to make it worthwhile to stop and just go back home. So those who were looking to come see the king for, exter- for ulterior motives can pick up their gift and take it back home, and they pre- and they did pretty well. But the diehards didn't 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 stop over there and continued climbing. Didn't even look at the gifts. Continued. They climb over the second wall, and they get on the other side. And literally, it's a overpopulated Serengeti um, plain, whatever they call it. The jungle. It's not a jungle. Whatever they are. Which means literally, it's a safari of wild beasts, makas orov, like we just discussed, of the mak of wild beasts. And here you have to go through, um, you know, two, three miles and run across the plains where there is roaming lions, tigers, grizzlies, and who knows what, all over the place. And it's terrifying. And yet the diehards keep on going. And again, some of them fall and some of them make it to the other side. As they finally get to the other side, there is another wall. Harder, more daunting, 
and the gifts that are being given out next to this wall to persuade people <coughs> to turn around and go back are, are, uh, are even greater than the ones before. And some people do decide that they, especially when they hear that the other side is an impossible, it's impossible to pass. So, but the diehards continue, they go over the third wall and suddenly there is volcanic territory where the whole thing you can see on the floor, it's all fire. And you have to run through literally a field of fire. And there's no way of getting through without burning yourself severely, blackening your, your, your skin, your body. And by now, there's hardly anybody that's going to risk what this takes. But there's just a few that do. And the one who's running really at the head and leading the rest of the pack is the prince. The prince wants to go see his father. And he's running and running and running. And somehow, with all the pain and suffering and scorching, and so he makes it to the other side. And past that already is the stairs to the palace. And he gets in and he comes to his father. And he's so happy to see his dad. And he's so happy to see the king. He's exhilarated. King, you're so happy to see him. But he says, Dad, what did you do? Look at me. I'm burnt. I'm, I'm all in pain. I suffered so much. I've gone through. So on. These people want to see you. All these good people want to see you. They want to come to you. Why did you? Like, what have you done? It used to be so simple to get over here. What is? What are all these all these obstacles, and the kings of what obstacles? I'm talking about this ferocious. You know what's going on? This is what he says. Wait, I don't understand. Which side did you come from? Which, which from which entrance to the palace? He says yeah, we came from the north. So the king takes the sun and he brings him to the window, and they look outside. They're looking out over a terrace, and as far as their eye can see, it's just magnificent, beautiful gardens, lush gardens, pathways, walkways, beautiful gazebos. And the music, and then it's it's it's, it's, it's the sun's like rubbing his eyes. Can this be? This is the the the, the river of fire that we jo- just walked by. This is the 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 the, the, the zoo that we had gone through. This is the, the 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 river with the crocodiles, and doesn't see a trace of it. So he's thinking, maybe we didn't come from the north. Maybe I, I, I maybe this was so traumatic, and we came from the west. So they went. They looked at the west. The exact same thing. And on the south, the same thing. And on the north, south, uh, on, and on the east, all four directions. All there is is palace. And all there is is exquisite beauty and love. This is the story that the Balshemtov said. The Balshemtov basically is really saying that there is a perspective that we go through in our limited scope of things in which there is such barriers and difficulties between us and the divine. But if we are determined with absolute determination and we finally get to the other side, we get to see things from God's perspective. And in God's perspective, uh, what, what appeared to be so ferociously difficult and hard is more hallucinations and more just things that are blocked. But to create this in a more modern analogy in which we can perhaps appreciate this a little better and understand this a little better. So let's go back into the palace, just a little bit other scene. Okay. So people are visiting the palace. It's the good old days. Everybody's there and it's wonderful. And people are strolling. Visitors come from far and wide from all over the king, young and old. And they are taking, they are taking part in the festivities in the palace. 
and they're being educated. You see, this is a benevolent king who doesn't just want to give people indulgences. He wants to educate and he wants to teach. So he has wise men walking around. And if you look at each gazebo, there's another class and another lecture in which the meaning of life is discussed and, and, and how do people, how do, how do, how to live a higher life and a more, more, how to live a meaningful life and so on and so forth. Teaching pearls of wisdom, the place, it's, it's beautiful. But there's one infamous doorway, which is like hush, people don't want to talk about it. Infamous doorway. People want to you pass through that doorway. It's like, there's rumors, there's all kinds of rumors what's going on on the other side of the door. Again, the peace and tranquility of the palace is just magnificent. And of course, there are those few curious ones who dismiss the rumors and want to check it out. What can possibly be? I mean, from the palace and the king is good, so it could be the ultimate treasure and goodness is just behind the door. Others were saying it's very dangerous, don't try. Others just can't hold back and elect to walk through the door. Now, so let's go into that. Go into that door and check out what's happening. So, and obviously with some trepidation and some fear, we open up the door and we go out. And suddenly, it's like uh, the first appearance is like, you know, it's like the strip on Ve in Vegas. It's like full of hotels and casinos and, and, and or it looks a little bit like Sunset Boulevard over here and, 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 yeah, and billboards and stuff and that. It's, it's a far cry of the tranquility and peacefulness of the palace. Okay, and there's a lot of stuff to get distracted by. Okay, so there's all the gambling, there's the casinos, and there's the nightclubs, and there is the bars, and there is the, all the stuff that are going on. And you're basically on this big, big major road or major street that's running through it. So you, you don't really have options, you just have to walk. And as you're going through, and there's all kinds of performers, and it's not bad, but, and there's many attractions to try to attract people into these, you know, to come in, like casinos always try to get you to come in. And I would say they make you, when I, one or twice, I never went to, to Vegas to gamble, but I did go to Vegas when I got on my nature trips to Utah. So they always make you that if you go into your room, you have to walk through the entire casino until you get to the elevators. So maybe, maybe they can tempt you to, to sit down and to try your luck. In any case, but this is what this was made for. It was, a, it was basically a, a long corridor of various temptation. Anyways, but as you're going further and further, it starts getting a little shittier in the area. Stand. It's not so much as a nice neighborhood. You're beginning to notice a little graffiti, and then there's more graffiti, and the music style that you're hearing is a little this, and the nightclubs are very loud, and the type of people that are hanging out outside are making you very uncomfortable to be walking over there at night alone, and you're feeling very queasy, but you've got no choice, so you're walking, and then suddenly you see the cops, and you heard gunshots, and there's gang rivalry gangs over there, and the whole situation is not nice. And you continue, or you're walking, you're, you're into, and now many people freeze and get paralyzed. They're just not gonna continue walking through these neighborhoods in this scary, scary, frightening time, especially since there are some, you know, there were some shooting going on. You can literally hear it and screams and shouts and, and 
And, but there are those who just keep on going. And as we're moving and moving and moving, you're passing through, you know, areas that is lots of, literally you can see it's just this drug pushers and then all kinds of others, really not nice things all over the place. It's really, really, really ferocious. And keep on going. And eventually, now it feels like, let's just, it feels like this road is going on endlessly. It feels like you're passing through this thing and it's weeks and months and even years and it's not coming to an end. And as you're moving through and through, the scenes keep on changing, but basically it's all an endless, seemingly an endless experience of distraction, things that evoke within us, within the people going through. So let's say not the most refined um, 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 elements of our soul that stimulate meditation and mindfulness and a higher consciousness, but the more base uh, inst- um, primal instincts of, 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 of the animal soul, if we can say. Those who make it through across this whole thing suddenly end up on the other side. They end up on the other side. They're going through glass doors. And when they come through the glass doors, as soon as the doors open, come out. Palace. And it's magnificently, it's again as it's even more beautiful than it was on the other side. The the the, the, the exquisite, you just the, the gardens like beyond, beyond. The fruits, the, the experience, the, the trunk, the, it's it is so the fountains, the it's beyond. And over there, there are some people waiting to greet those that come out. And the people, and they see that these people are, many of them are shaking. They're, they're, they're like, they've been through a lot of trauma. But when they come on the other side, they meet them and they tell them, turn around. They turn the people around, facing the place where they just went, they just had exited, their whole area. And when they're looking through, and it's all glass. And they're looking through the glass and all they see is a beautiful garden with birds and trees and, and it actually looks just as lush and beautiful on the other side of the two doors like it looks on the outside and they're possible i mean we just walked through this whole scene which was so not a, a beautiful tranquil garden and what is this so they say listen here it's really all about lighting it's all in the lighting. You see, when you're in there, you don't get the proper lighting. And when you don't get the proper lighting is when you're not seeing it the way it really is. So I said, you know what? Let's take you in. Let's go right back in. So these guys get, take these survivors and they take them right back into that place. And they're going through and they come to this wall of this really disgusting graffiti that is all over the wall, which really meant and he says, um, see, this was like, he said, oh, man, this was terrible. He says, but now let me, let me just, and the, and, and, and the guy in charge over there shining the light a little different. And as the proper rays of light are going on to this very same wall, suddenly realize that the graffiti, it's like the rose parade where you see the flowers, right? It really is just a bunch of bushes of various different berries. And the berries that are on the bushes are creating all these different 
terms that with the other lighting just came across as the most despicable and vulgar graffiti. And over here is just really beautiful berries and clusters of fruits. And the way it is set up is just to give that impression. But when the moment you see it as, as it's berries, that's what it is. So it's very, oh, I can't believe it. And then when they come across that nightclub where they had these guys standing outside, as I mentioned earlier, that you were kind of sh shivering to walk by. And you were terrified because the guy out there was sitting with big gold chains on and stuff outside like this and that. I'm scaring you. So I'm up closer and you see, you know what it really is? With the proper lighting, it wasn't even people. What it really was was a few a, a, a group of trees and the noise that sounded like the very intense rap music that was coming out was just an alteration in the sound of a beautiful and magnificent waterfall. And as, and, and the guy is showing, you hear the rap, you hear the waterfall. If you're getting the full sound, you're seeing the waterfall. When you're seeing the full vision, you're seeing these beautiful garden trees. But since you're getting an impaired vision, you know how it is when, I remember when I was a kid, how terrified I was at night in our bedroom when the lights are off and you have a pair of pants hanging from the thing, you wake up in the middle of the night and you get hallucinations that the pants is a person and the closet, something is a bathrobe hanging from the closet. And I remember I used to get up in the middle of the night and I used to tiptoe so quietly because I didn't want the guy to hear me and I'm attacking him. And I knew, I, I would figure out in my mind that it's the bathrobe. But I was terrified, not the less, because it was impacting me. And I would go over and quickly throw it like off. So, it would, <laughs> so this is basically what we're talking about. Things that get the impression to look like what they look like because of the, the, the decreased lighting and the decreased thing. So now it's clear to everybody that passed through this thing that they misread everything they saw, everything. However, they asked, but how is someone supposed to know that? How is someone supposed to recognize that during the time you're going in, you are millions of miles away from the king and his benevolent and, and his benevolence and his kind, generous palace with all the beauty? This is such a far cry. This is the slums of the slums, certain areas that we went by. How in the world are you telling me this is how are they supposed to know this is the garden? They have no clue. Is it the fault that there are so many people that are that have gotten drunk in the in the bars? So many people that are still caught up because they they got caught up in the in the in the in the in the in the in the, in the casinos. So many of them are still frozen in fear because they're afraid to. They're cowering in a corner because they're afraid of the of what we might say the various different elements that are out there and they're scared and they're cowering to walk there at night. How are they supposed to? So the king's wise men say, come close, let me show you something. Brings them to, let's go to, the, to this nightclub. Obviously not the nicest situation of who's standing outside and what it looks around. And you go over to the wall and the wall is made up of stones. And as the person takes the special light and shines it on one of the stones and he says, look carefully. Now, again, at this point, you are actually seeing a nightclub. You're not seeing a garden. 
You're not seeing the wall of bushes that have berries on them that look like graffiti. You're actually seeing the actual wall or you're seeing this, the casino, you're seeing the club, you're seeing the bar. That's what you're seeing. But he says, look carefully. It's what do you see? And they look carefully. And they see that on the stone, there is a signature. There's a writing. They look closely. So whose signature? Everybody knows that's the king's signature. Then he shows them, look at the other stone. And maybe move, and he looks closely. It has the king's signature. Then he says, let's bend down. He bends down, and there is a Budweiser beer, uh, can crushed in the middle on the floor next to some cigarette uh, uh, buds. Puts, what is it called? Buds. Picks up the, the, the can of beer and looks at it. And he says, what do you see? And examine the can. It's a regular bud. And see at the bottom, it has the king's signature on it. Then he looks at the cigarette uh, buds and he sees that they too have the king's signature. Then when you go back to the one who had, when you're seeing those people standing at the corner and this guy is out there with the earrings, he looks like literally a seven foot, whatever. Uh, he's the bouncer in the uh, whatever. And, and he's standing outside and it's kind of a scary type of a fellow. And you're looking at his chain and on the chain is inscribed his signature on the chain of the king's of the king's signature. And so it is on every sub detail of detail of what you're looking at. He says, so if you're careful, if you remember that, the, that you were just in the king's palace, and this is just another door in the king's palace, the king has got to be here somewhere. He must have left you a clue of his presence. So by finding those signatures, then you realize nothing can harm you because this is all the king's place. And that is what you needed to look at when you went through. So you would know that maybe your eyes are playing tricks on you. Maybe you're seeing things not the way they are. You really have nothing to fear. So what does this really mean in everyday life? So we all know there's a story of the Holy Balshemtov. The Balshemtov, the Balshemtov was once, um, his students were sitting in the in the shul, and they were either studying Torah or engaged in prayer. But I think more they were sitting around and having a little fabrengen. So they were having like sitting together, saying l'chaim, telling stories, and in a, a more heightened spiritual state. These are the students in the Balsham. Something is a banging on the door of the shul. It's a cold night, so they go and they open the door, and there's a um, peasant outside. Uh, Ukrainian peasant, and he's talking like roughly. And he says, "Oh, guys, he says, I need your help. I need you guys. This good. You guys, I need like five, six guys. Come on, sir." They say, "Well, whoa, whoa. He says my horse, my wagon got stuck in the in the mud. I need your help to help us to help me pull the wagon out." First of all, it's cold outside. Secondly, they were not interested in being outside with horses and peasants and wagons in the mud. They're talking here. They're in the sublime discussions, talking deep teachings, secret teachings of their master. They really don't. So they started giving the guy excuses. And they were telling him, tired, we're weak. Look at us. We're all we're a bunch of elderly Jews. We don't have the power. Came to the wrong address. Two blocks over. There's a tavern over there. Go over there. You'll find some gesunte young guys. They'll go out and help you. And these guys begging. They don't want to come. And he gets angry at them. 
and he yells at them. And I don't know the phrase, but most uh, Chabad rabbis do know the phrase, but I don't know the Russian phrase. It's a very famous Russian phrase amongst Chabad Hasidim. It was handed down a teaching from a story of the Balshem. He basically says, you're able, you're able, but you don't want to. He said it in, you know, in, 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 his, in Russian. You're able, you're able, you're capable, you're capable, but you don't want to. And with that, he slammed the door and he left. And the students, you know, okay. They were happy he left them to go and they sat back down. And suddenly the Balshemtov appeared. The Balshemtov said, did you hear? Did you hear what he just said? You're able, you're able, but you don't want to. You have so much you're able to do. You have such capabilities and you always give excuses. You can't, I can't this, I can't. I can't daven, I can't learn, I can't help another person. I can't help. You're able. You just don't want to. It's one story. This Saturday night, Matzah Shabbos, we had a, we had a, a Malava Malka and we were talking about the great Sadiq Ramosha Leibov Sasev. So the great saint, he's also a great Hasidic rabbi and completely influenced by the Holy Baal Shem. And Ramosha Leibov Sasev is sitting with it once in a inn, and the inn had a bar, and he was sitting in the bar. And that night there was festivities in the bar. There was the local, the local town orchestra was playing. Orchestra, you know, a couple of guys, and they were, and they were all drunk. The guys were all drunk. You know, one of the blessings we have today's days that there is television and other forms of entertainment, sports people watch, but. And the old and, and those times where people didn't have what to do in the evening. So many people, you know, would just go to the bar and drunk them and drink themselves to a stupor. People still do that today too. But in any case, the guys were there, and the rabbi is sitting in a corner, hoping he's not really he got to be there for a reason, but he was hoping not to be really noticed. And in the midst of their dancing and whatever it is that's going on, one of them says to the other one, he says, "Ivan," he says, "I love you." And Ivan says. What? He said, I love you so much. And he says, no, you don't love me. He says, yes, I do love you. And he wants to get up and hug him. He says, okay, so you love me? He says, yes. He says, so tell me, what am I lacking? What am I lacking? And the guy was silent. And he said, no, you don't love me. If you don't know what I'm lacking, you don't love me. And Ramosha Leib Sassiver said, wow, wow. I haven't begun to love another Jew. It's a mitzvah to love another Jew. If you don't know what the, your, your fellow is lacking, what do you mean? Love is cheap. I love you. Do you really know what, what your friend, what your neighbor, what, what your cousin, what, whatever it is, is lacking? Do you even care to bother to find out what they're lacking so you can find out at least and empathize if you can't help them or help them? So Ramosha Leib Sassiver is hearing a divine message in the drunkenness of two peasants. Now the Lubavitcher Rebbe is sitting in Crown Heights and it's, well, I don't know which year exactly it was. It was after Rosh Hashanah. After, I'm sorry, it was in Tishrei. It was after Simchas Torah. Simchas Torah, the most joyous time of the year. It was, Simchas Torah came out on a Friday and it was Shabbos, if I'm, if I'm correct. I think this is what happened. Shabbos afternoon, the Rebbe would come down and do a Fabrengen, like Shabbos Beratius. The problem was there was so much Fabrengen and Akafis and stuff going on that the place was a, literally a wreck and no one cleaned up. Plus, it was also freezing cold. 
So downstairs was cold and it was messy. And there was all kinds of stuff strewn around all over. And it was just not a very conducive environment, both for the Rebbe to sit, the Hasidim felt for the Rebbe, and also for the Hasidim to hang out for a few hours. So they, someone suggested that they should go have the Fabrengen somewhere else. So the Rebbe said, why not downstairs? So this Hasid said, because downstairs, Val Unten is kalt und schmutzig. This is what he said. Val Unten is kalt und schmutzig, which in English that means because downstairs it is cold, it is cold and filthy. The Rebbe did do the Fabrengen downstairs, I think. And during the Fabrengen, the Rebbe broke out sobbing and sobbing uncontrollably. And the Rebbe said like this, we're already in the end of the month of Tishrei. We've already had the entire month of Elul, which is a month of Elul, is a month of preparation. We've prepared already. We're supposed to do soul searching in the month of Elul, a month of prayer, a month, a month of introspection. We had the Salichot. We had Chayel, he said, the 18th day of Elul, which is the Balshemta's birthday, and the Magid's and the Alter Rebbe's birthday. And it's the beginning of a 12-day intense period of preparation for Rosh Hashanah. And then we had Salichot. Salichot is when you get up early in the morning, a few days before Rosh Hashanah, by the Ashkenazim at least, to pray. It's far to do it the whole month. And then we had Rosh Hashanah. And we had the 10 days of repentance. And we had Yom Kippur. And then we had Sukkot. Sukkot, which is the time of joy and happiness. And then we had Simchas Torah, which is the highest time. And after all of this, what are they telling us from heaven? What's the message that we are told in heaven? Is that downstairs is cold and dirty. And the Rebbe couldn't come himself. Downstairs is cold and dirty. That means we're still cold and we're still filthy. That means we haven't even begun to do tshuva yet to repair. The Rebbe just was. What's the common denominator between these three stories? Every single one of them. In all three of them, these great saintly people didn't see the bricks or didn't see the beer bottles or didn't see the cigarette butts and didn't see the chains or whatever it was. They saw the king's signature. The king is talking to us from everywhere and in everything because it really is only him. Now, when the lights will turn on, when eventually the lights will turn on, when we'll see the entire picture, and that's what Mashiach is, the Rebbe said to us, we will turn around and see this world as a garden. This world is a garden. It doesn't mean that there's no people, there's only trees. It means that what we are seeing from people, what we are seeing in the events that are happening, are only a shadow. It's only a certain angle of things, and therefore we're not seeing the entire godliness of it. Because the world is created now in its limitations. When we can complete the polishing and the purification and allowing the full godliness to reveal itself, then we're going to see every moment of history, every story, every dark moment, every frightening moment, every, every negativity that ever existed is just another facet of a divine, magnificent, greater, infinite beauty. Even though to us now, it's impossible. It, 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 it cannot be. It's so, I have so much pain. I'm suffering so much. It's so dark. Matter of perspective, what we can see, what we can't see. But that's going to be when Mashiach comes. That's Mashiach comes. That's not what we're talking about in the discourse. We're talking about how do we survive even before the lights turn up?
even before everything is suddenly transformed and we see it all as part of the garden. We have to look for the fingerprints of God. The fingerprints of God that are put everywhere, even in a world that is dark, even in a world that seems to be that God has abandoned, that there's no divinity in this world. We can see God and we can see God with all of his entirety. We can see his infinity. And as I pointed out to you in the Mimer earlier, from the very fact that the trees that are outside your house are still as fresh as they were thousands of years ago. It's not the same tree, but the trees that were planted thousands of years ago weren't any more trees than these trees. The sky isn't sogging. Everything, the sun, the, 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 the galaxies, everything is as powerful, as strong. The ocean is roaring as it is. The fact that we see myriads and myriads of infinite creatures around us is like endless. The fact that we, so God is written all over. There isn't one tiny little cell in which we don't see the infinity. And we don't see, wherever we look, we just don't want to see it. It's not only tzaddikim. I told the story in the past. I'm going to repeat it quickly. Even regular folks, when God gives us a moment and when we pay attention, we can see like that. Even what looks like to be so misaligned with the divine is really nothing other than the divine. I told you the story in the past. About a year and a half ago, I'm going I'm to conclude with this story. About a year and a half ago, I was was in, I, I took a hike with my daughter on um, in the summer. It was Parshas Re'e, and I was in Griffith Park, and I was doing then daily videos, which I hope to start again. Hashem should give me only the insight and the energy to to just start again. I don't know why I'm having such a block, but in any case, at that time, I did this walk, and we hiked up to a place called Dante's Point. In Griffith's Park. And it's a place where you, when you're up there, you can basically look at the entire skyline of the city of downtown Los Angeles. It's, it gives you a little bit of a brighter perspective on the city. Very, it's it's pretty, it's a pretty good workout to, to walk up. But anyways, I come there, weren't really planning to go there. We picked a hike, we get up to the top. And as I'm walking, I was thinking what to say. It's a short video of two and two and a half minutes. For those of you who can believe that I can talk for two and a half minutes. In any case, it was like a, two, a three minute video, a four minute clip. And I came up with an idea based on the Thursday night class that I taught the night before. And the idea that it's spoken about at the, in the mimer that we learned the night before is that there are two eyes. There's God's one eye, is God's eye, God's perspective, which we understand that really well, how God sees the full picture. And then there is our eye. And our eye is the eye that we see ourselves, we see ourselves disconnected from God and everything in this world separated. And we are detached from it. And there we learned that the point of Torah and mitzvahs, of all of our service is to even out God's eye. That, it, that in our lower eye, we should download his higher eye. It's based on a pasuk which says, to, to make what is straight in God's eyes, in other words, means to straighten out both of God's eyes. Because our lower distorted eye comes from Hashem first distorting his vision so that we should be able to see it. If God wouldn't first tweak and, tw and tw the words, twerk the, 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 the vision, 
then we wouldn't be able to see it the way we see it. The reason why we can see it the way we see it is because Hashem first looks at the world also the way we look at it. But he also has the higher vision. And we can even out those two visions. And that's the point of Torah and Mitzvah. And I was saying, wow, this is an awesome teaching to give from this high perch when I'm looking down at Los Angeles from the top. And there's the video that is going to be my background. Anyways, I sit down and I'm going to film. And my daughter says, eh, I think we can get a better view from around there. So we leave there. She's my camera, uh, whatever, cameraman. She crap camera lady. She takes me around on the other side, and there's a, and she and and I find a bench there, quiet, tranquil. I sit down. She prepares the camera and she's shooting, and I'm saying this teaching. I'm talking all about downloading the higher eye of God into our vision, our consciousness. And I spoke about that. That's what twenty was was in the year 2020. That's what 2020 is. 20 is the higher eye, and the other 20 is the lower eye. And 2020 is the unification of the two eyes, the year 2020. That was the whole talk. When I'm done, I see my daughter was laughing. I said, what? She says, look at, the, look at the bench. I look down at the bench. And on the bench, there's graffiti. And on the graffiti, it says the word I, not the, not the letter I, E-Y-E. And it says on the entire bench, graffitied, I, not a scribbling graffiti, but a stamp graffiti. I, 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 maybe 10 times the word I across the bench. And then that's what she tells me. I see I, she says, isn't that cool? But then we look even further. On the top, wherever there's an I, right on top of it is another word, also in black ink, faded ink, but it's there. Real I. The word is real and on top of I. I almost fainted. I said, this is just crazy. We're talking about downloading God's eye. I come to a random place. And then I realize the depth of what just happened. What's the depth? What's the real eye? The real eye is that even the graffiti people who sometimes we get angry at, why are they doing in God's world? In other words, when you're thinking about people that are living in a lawlessness state, in a frivolous state, people that don't have respect, people that don't have um, they're not living a more productive life. They're running around making graffiti everywhere, places that are supposed to be natural and beautiful. So these are the people that kind of are the most destructive in the world. And yet, what are they participating in? They're part of a divine plan. And their very writing is part of some godly message. And I called the video Holy Graffiti. This was crazy. Wait, the story's not over. A year later, this past summer, it's Friday again. It's earlier in the year. The day before that, Yud Gimel Thomas, the day before that was, I'm sorry, it was Yud Dalit Thomas, I think, on a Friday. The day before that was Thursday. We, I had a Fabrengan in my house, I remember then, for the honor of Yud Beis Thomas, or maybe it was two nights before, I'm not sure. And the terrible, devastating event that happened was that the building came down in Surfside, Florida, and, and, and hundreds of people were trapped and killed. And I was, uh, and we were all shaking. And it, that itself was a horrible tragedy. But to make matters worse, it came after a series of events that were utterly unexplainable. The 30, the, the, the 45 young boys that were crushed in Maron and the Surfside, and then there were a few other events that were just devastating. And basically everybody, everybody was shooken up and everybody felt that God is not happy with us. People were feeling that God is like really upset. He's giving us and something has to happen. He's waking us up because every single one of these events involved Jewish people. So it was a call and all kinds of rabbis were going to give out 
all kinds of messages about us needing to do tshuva and us needing to repair. And I agreed to that, that that's part of a lesson. But I felt at that moment when we were so crushed, the message should not be that. And that I should follow the fat Balshanto's footsteps. And instead of rebuke the people, I should rebuke God. So in my message, and I ended up on Dante's point, the exact same place. And when we got there, we looked at the bench and they already covered, they repainted the bench. There was no graffiti. So we're sitting there and I, and I do this whole talk. And what am I doing? I mean, basically, I'm telling the people, that I'm t- I'm in my video, I'm saying God really loves us. God for sure loves us. And I was talking about God's love and so on. So but I was saying, if you love us and you're married to us, it's not nice. If you have a message to tell us, why don't you send us a prophet? Why are you communicating through sign language? It's not nice when a husband is upset and he breaks plates and he throws eggs or a wife is upset. Talk. It's all about communication. God, this is not communication. Throwing down buildings on people, doing this is not um, this is not nice communication, and that was my chutzpah. I'm sorry that I mentioned, and it was very soothing to a lot of people because people needed to hear something. Like, yeah, yeah. So we we can demand from God to be nicer to us, although we know He's always right. But at the same time, He wants us to call out. I finished the video, and again, it was I think the chama, my daughter, who realized that she turned around. So here's the bench. She was filming me. And behind her were two, two, two trees. And from the two trees were hanging one string from one branch and one string from the other branch. And in the middle of it was a piece of wood, I think it was. And either it was engraved or it was um, um, written, I think it was in script, in, in I think, nice purple color, pink, I don't know what it was. And it was written, love. And I was thinking, wow. This is, <laughs> I'm up at the same place. And both times I had no idea of what I was saying. So first of all, I, it's clear that when you come to a place, the place itself talks to you. There's an energy. But there's something else over here. The idea is that everything is Hashem. There's nothing but God. There's nothing but God. It's really only Him. It always was only Him. But what God wants of us is sometimes we don't see it, but at least we should contemplate that even in the darkness, he is completely shining his infinity. And that's what I said in the beginning. God is super cool. He can be completely hidden. And he'd be completely revealed at the same time. He is so hidden in life. And yet he's so there. And in every person you meet, whether it's your Uber driver, whether it's the mailman, whether it's the encounter you have in the grocery store, the bank teller, you have, you have a divine message to give. But listen, listen to what is being said and hear the deeper sound, hear the deeper vibrations of the divine. And even when things seem to be vulgar, disgusting, not that you have to search vulgarity and despicable things, but if you heard it and you hear something, always know that there is a higher, deeper, godly something to it. And if we're open to it and we want to see it and we want to hear it, we will see it and we will hear it. And we can experience the divine even before the lights turn on when Mashiach comes. And then we will see that everything was just a matter of perspective based on the lighting. May we merit to see Mashiach Tzadkeinu this Yotshvat. And even before Yotshvat, so Yotshvat already, we should dance with Mashiach. And may that be revealed to us now, now, and now. Thank you.